0: We're going to continue this morning and worship through the Word, and uh, it's funny how God works because we're going to talk about that verse, some of the verses that he skipped we're going to talk about today. Um, If you've been with us for a few weeks, you know the deal. We're in a sermon series on the book of Malachi, and it's been awesome, but uh, it's a hard, it's a quick book, it's a small book, but there's a lot packed in there, and I hope you've been reading it. If you've not been reading it, I encourage you to read it. It's literally like two and a half pages, I think, depending on the size of your Font in your Bible, but uh, I'd encourage you to read it. It's the last prophet in the Old Testament before those 400 years of silence, right? So you have this uh, period where the Jewish people are waiting for Messiah to come, and then the prophets are speaking about the Messiah coming, and then there's just this period of silence, and Malachi is the last one. As a matter of fact, where you find it in your Bible is the last book of the Old Testament just before the first book of the New Testament, which is really funny to me because every time I listen to it on the Bible Gateway app, it finishes the four chapters of Malachi and then it says Matthew chapter one. And then it starts telling the story of Jesus. So it's like really right there and it reminds us of what we are uh, looking at. We've talked for a few weeks now about what the book is and it starts off by saying it's a hard word from Malachi. And uh, I don't know if, if you've been reading it, studying it, but it's, it's packed with stuff, but it's pretty difficult. Like, it's not like super chipper and bright. It's saying there's some things that God has to take uh, his people to task for. But he says himself that it's a hard word. It, it finds Israel doubting God's love, which is a remarkable thing to write record. <laughs> that the people of God were doubting the love of God in the middle of their situation. But that's where we find Israel. You'll you recall that we find them returning to Jerusalem for worship and returning uh, to uh, the promised land that they had been exiled from. And then last week we talked about this idea that they've been dishonoring God's love, the last couple weeks, dishonoring uh, God's name in two particular ways. They've been dishonoring his name by offering blemished sacrifices. They started to say, ah, it's good enough for who it's for, right? Good enough for who it's for. And then the second thing is that they've been dishonoring his name uh, by half-hearted worship. And, and, and they just weren't sincere in what they were doing any longer. It became rote. It became perfunctory. It became just this thing they did. And they weren't really even attending to the God that they were worshiping. They were just doing the stuff that required them. As a matter of fact, God was so frustrated, he says, I'm going to turn your blessings into curses. And we talked about that last week. He said that because of a lack of zeal, particularly for the priests of his people. So not only is the accusation against Israel as a whole, but against those who are leading Israel to say, you've lost your zeal for me, and therefore your blessings will turn into curses. And we kind of lined that out last week. And again, if that ain't a hard word, I don't know what it is. Like, that the very things that you find the most beneficial in life, that you praise God for all the time, can become the very things that are... Uh, curses to you because we are not rightly worshiping and honoring God for those blessings. As a matter of fact, if I'm not mistaken, even you find that in Romans 1 and 2 where it makes the case that in spite of the creation that you you fail to acknowledge the creator. That's the big sin in Romans 1 and 2 that you fail to acknowledge the one who made everything and, and just go about enjoying the stuff he made as if he's not relevant or whatever other blessing you have in your life. As if God isn't relevant. And so we've kind of come up now to this place. We're going to read a little bit of overlap from last week. And just five verses today is all we're going to talk about from the book of Malachi. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and take it out. We're going to look at Malachi chapter 2, starting in verse 11. And we're just going to read 11 through 16. This is what the word says. Judah has broken faith. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord cut him off from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings offerings to the Lord Almighty. That was last week. We covered that a little bit. 13. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts the, with pleasure Them with pleasure from your hands. You ask, why? It is because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth, because you have broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit, they are his. And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit. And do not break faith with the wife of your youth. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. And I hate a man's covering himself with violence as well as with his garments, says the Lord Almighty. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. We're going to spend some time on that last verse there because it's a strange thing um, covering violence with garments. We're going to talk about what that means. But this is the next section of the hard word from Malachi I'm going to ask you to we always we're going to pray for wisdom and understanding in God's word that we could not just hear it but we could apply it to our lives so pray with me if you would father God we thank you so much for this morning a chance to worship you together and to talk to you yet again in this prayer right now and we recognize that that is a privilege not a right that you don't have to bend an ear to us you don't have to listen to us but you choose to because as Chris shared you made us in your image and you want a relationship with us so right now father we come to you as your children asking you to give us wisdom Would you help us to understand your word? Would your spirit be our teacher? And would we receive our instruction from you directly? Would you help the things that I've thought about and the things that you've put on my heart this week um, be glorifying to you first and foremost, and then as appropriate, instructive to others, Father. For the things that are not of you, I pray that you would fall away and that only you would be known. Only your truth would be known. Be our teacher. We need you to do this because we have no wisdom of our own. So, Father, give us open minds, open hearts, and, and the courage in this uncertain time to live out a faith that's worthy of your name. Glorify yourself. We pray it in Jesus' name. And the people say, amen. So, so Malachi's kind of chugging along here. We're going verse by verse through this, but it's this a hard word for Malachi. And I have a question. What do you think God would find deeply offensive you know, a few weeks ago, we talked about, he said, just stop with the offerings. Just shut, shut the temple doors. Just close it down. I'm, I'm over it, right? But, but, but then the, when you start thinking about the things that God would find offensive, uh, I'm not sure we make the same list that God, God makes. And what would be the things that you believe that God would find deeply offensive? We're going to talk about one of those things today. And what God finds deeply offensive is Unfaithfulness. He calls it an abomination. It's, it's uh, in verse 11. We just hit this at the end of last week's message, and it kind of felt when we were talking about it like it was just tacked on, and then we picked, we're going to pick it up today in verse 11. Judah has broken faith. Judah is one of the names of God's people. You have Judah, Jerusalem, the place of worshiping, and Israel, the people of God. There was a kingdom separation between Judah and Israel, right? And so he's speaking, though, to, um, to Judah, but to all Israelites in the same way. Judah has broken faith. The word broken faith there means has been unfaithful, or you could interpret that as um, uh, dealt treacherously. So he says, My people have dealt treacherously, and what does it say right before that? With one another, right? They're breaking faith with one another, but with God Himself. They're breaking faith with God. I, this word is wild because I was like, well, dealt treacherously or unfaithful or broken faith. What does that even mean, right? But then I, I was surprised to find out that this word occurs five times in six verses right here in Malachi. <laughs> like, if you're looking for a point to the text, it's going to be unfaithfulness. Because to, I could, I'm could i like, there can't be five times. And I went through and I kind of like, oh, no, there is. One's right before this verse um, in chapter and. Uh, Verse 10, the verse before, and then uh, here in 11, and it happens a couple more times in this text as we'll talk about today. But five times, God says, I find unfaithfulness an abomination uh, to me. Why? Why? A detestable thing has been committed, that's the abomination there, has been committed in Israel and Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves. And so what the sanctuary the Lord loves, you can think, well, animal sacrifices. They're they're not doing it in a worthy way. They're bringing in weak sacrifices or or failed sacrifices. It's not good enough, right, for him who he truly is. But the word uh, sanctuary there is um, uh, not exactly temple. I thought I was going to find temple, right? But it's his holiness that he's demanding a recognition of. His, his perfectness, the covenant promises that he made, who he is. And, and you find, and it's really discouraging, honestly, because you find here at the end of Israel's story in the Old Testament, them um, really struggling to believe. Really struggling to believe God is holy and righteous. But the Lord, it says, loves his own holiness. And that's what Judah is desecrating says you've been des- detestable thing has been done you've committed in Israel and in Jerusalem Judah has desecrated the sanctuary that the Lord loves by marrying the daughter of a foreign god and so we're going to get into this idea of how he feels betrayed but i want you to first hear that and that you must know it that there is god himself is pleased in his holiness and if you if you don't think that that's true you're misunderstanding the gospel and you're misunderstanding the god that sent jesus to die for his perfection Right, So this whole idea is that he is requiring holiness of his people and they become kind of like laissez-faire about it. How have they desecrated the, the holiness of God? Well, here's what it says then. By marrying daughters uh, of foreign gods. This is one way you can interpret that. Here's another one. By marrying women who worship foreign gods. Judah has desecrated the temple by marrying, or by his holiness, by marrying women who are outside of Israel. And and God calls this betrayal of trust an an abomination. And honestly, I'm not sure if you're like me, but I find that like really harsh. I'm like, what? That's really extreme, God, that you're going to, because there's this idea, and it gets really kind of hard to deal with when you're thinking, so we have to marry in our own people only, and it's very like us and them-ish, you know? And I'm like, God, why would you forbid that? That they would marry daughters of foreigners. That they would, the words say, marry daughters who worship foreign gods. We're going to unpack that today. Why would that be a huge deal in God's eyes? Because he clearly is not pleased with it. Matter of fact, if we go on to read the last part of this first two verses here, it says... Malachi says as for the person who the man who does this whoever he may be so Malachi makes no claim to know who this is as doing these things right but whoever that person may be may the Lord cut that's Yahweh cut him off from the tents of Jacob even though he's bringing offerings to the Lord of hosts and so this idea that there's people who are going through the ritual sacrifice are doing the things they're performing some you know function but then they're betraying God in this really intimate part of their lives and he says, may, and this is, I hear Malachi speaking here, may the Lord cut off that one even as he's offering the sacrifices because he's done something God calls detestable. What in the world is going on with that? What is the problem? Here's my question with this first little what is the problem with marrying someone who worships a foreign God? Right? Why would God have such a stake in that? Well, to get the answer, we're actually going to turn to the book of Genesis. You can stay here in Malachi if you want. Um, I have a slide of this, but Genesis 2. So uh, one of the things that I have the privilege of doing at Family Bible Church is I get to marry people sometimes, right? And I really love, I'm a fan of marriage. And so we get to talk to people. And this is the verse that I always share with couples, no matter what their faith background or what they believe, because people come from all over the place to get married um, At Family Bible Church, and you might be surprised to find that a lot of people I marry at Family Bible Church aren't from Family Bible Church, and we don't get married at Family Bible Church. (laughs) It's usually like at a winery, or at another event, or even sometimes out of country, but there's lots of people. But this is an opportunity for us to express God's profound and mysterious uh, wisdom in marriage. This comes in Genesis chapter 2. I'm going to read around a little more than that, but 20 through 25 is what I'm going to read, and this is part of what Chris read this morning as well. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and the beasts of the field. This is the creation narrative, right? But for Adam, no suitable suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took a side of the man, and he closed the place up with flesh. And then the Lord God made woman from the side he had taken from man. And he brought her to the man. Okay, so creation narrative, man's created, God's taken part of man and made a woman, and he brought the woman to man, and here's the response we have in the text. The man says, one of my favorite things, by the way, the man says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken from man. And then the narrator in Genesis adds this. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh and then one final verse the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame so there's some things happening here in this passage that's really uh surprising to me that god creates a helper is what it says a suitable helper um, for man because man is alone and there's no one for man to be with like his own kind. I know this might be a radical thought right now, because given our cultural context, you would think we're from different species. <laughs> you would think men and women are from different planets. You know, you've heard the book, right? You would think that we aren't even part of the same creation story. But the Bible tells a story that actually women and men are meant to be intimately involved with each other. We aren't hostile warring parties. We're on the same team. What a radical thought that, that this, isn't, this is about a helping one another in a complete completion of God's intent for um, mankind, as Chris shared. Check it out. I love these like, you know, this is now a bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. I told you guys a few months ago at my shock about my own misunderstandings about um, who we have more in common with, right? The humanity has more in common with one another than anything else. By the way, that, that's a great thing to keep in the forefront of our minds. We're dealing with our life every day right now that we have far more in common than we have separate. We have far more things that are the same than different, but we have a tendency to exaggerate the differences, minimize the similarities, and then just and, and war with one another. Well this is my why I share this with young couples in in uh, premarital counseling because this is the beginning of that journey right in so many ways this is the reason that a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife there's the word and they will become one flesh and i always say that's a great mystery people go that's about children not necessarily Right? There's something God does in marriage that's holy and sacred and other. And as a matter of fact, it says then, so much so that the two become one flesh. That's a great mystery. And they were the man and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. And this is all pre-fall. This doesn't mean that marriage was God's plan for after sin came in the world. It means in God's design of things, his intent was for marriage. You must see what's happening in Genesis 2 to understand his offense when his people are betraying him later disobeying him in this very sacred covenant, right? Because he's there with them, and he's bearing witness to this completion of a promise. Adam had been looking feverishly. Who will be my completer? Who will be the one? And by the way, and let's just say this for the clarity, we're not talking about some subservient thing here, right? It's like the help, helper is this idea that... Um, what is it? There's a word for it, um, not compatibility, but it's like, uh, there's a word for this. Anybody know it? Complementarianism.
1: Yes, that's
0: a fancy word, complementarianism. It means you're bringing something together that you don't have separately. And it's for God's glory you're doing that, right? You're not supposed to be the same. You're supposed to be different. Can you tell I've talked to some couples about this before? Maybe my wife and I a whole lot. <laughs> if, if your two are the same, one's not necessary, That's the word, complementarianism, that they were coming together for this purpose and they were pleased and blessed and God was glad for them and there was no shame in that relationship. Nothing to hide from God in that relationship. You see, here's the truth, is that marriage is God's good idea. Like, biblical marriage is God's good idea. And so when his people begin to betray him in this way, he gets really upset with them about the betrayal. Why would that be? If you've, if you've been married or if you're about to be married or, or maybe you know people who are married, it's, it's a hard to explain, but it's the most um, painfully intimate relationship you'll have, right? It has the most potential to do great things and horrible things all at the same time. It, it's a place where uh, you, you make yourself vulnerable to someone and, and they can you know, love you and care for you and you can love them and care for them or you can tear each other's hearts out. Which is why it's the focus of so many dramas, right? How many like uh, reality TV shows are just about the drama of relationships? What's that about? It's the most intimate space. Why does that matter? Because inviting someone into the most intimate space that's not going to worship God the way God meant to, is meant to be worshiped is going to be very destructive for God's people. This isn't just like some kind of edict like, don't be like those people. That's not what he's saying. He's like, find people who, who have a heart for me. Find people who are worshiping me. As a matter of fact, you'll recall the story of Israel if you've not read the Old Testament. There are plenty of people who are outside of Israel that recognize God's holiness and power, and he honors them for that because they are worshiping him. They're, 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 they're recognizing him for who he is. And so there's an admonition that you ought not marry someone who doesn't worship me. Um, this is deeply tied into the creation narrative. By the way, if we look in Malachi itself, right after that, right before that, he had said, Did not one God make you, create you? These are intimate questions. Here's another place we find the admonition, and this is in 2 uh, Corinthians. Just lest you think, well, that's just a. Uh, let me see if I can find it here. That's just the Old Testament thing. 2 Corinthians, where are we at? Uh, 6 fourteen. 14, I'm just going to read this. I don't have time to preach this, but I want to point out just some key words here. This is Paul writing to the church in Corinth. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. You may have heard that before, right? Why? Because, uh, for, because what do the righteous have to do with the wicked? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? Or what harmony is there between Christ and Bilal? Or what does a believer have in common with the unbeliever? Or what agreement is there between the temple of God and the temple of idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As, as God has said, I will live with them and I will walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and listen to the word, and you will be my sons and my daughters, says the Lord of hosts. And that's a quote of Old Testament prophecy. That this is the way he wants to interact with us. That we ought not be yoked with those who don't believe. Now, I must say and confess to you, that's a very hard thing for me to contend with. I've talked to other uh, pastors about the intimacy of marriage, and I'm like, okay, how do you do this stuff? You know, because this is how it happened for me. Someone displayed extreme grace with me, and they walked with me through premarital counseling and, and, and just and blessed our marriage, and it ended up being my salvation, not that my marriage saved me, but the opportunity to not be exiled from the community gave me a chance to hear the gospel. But what I ever say, and this is what, so I've had pastors say to me, because I'm always looking for wisdom, what do you do? They say, well, if you have two believers, I'll marry them. If you have two non-believers, I'll marry them. But if you have a believer and a non-believer, I won't marry them. I'm like, wow, <laughs> right? Usually what my modus operandi is, I share the gospel with them. I tell them what they ought to believe, and then If I don't, if I sense that it's a good marriage, like I'm going to pray for them, but I'm going to marry them. I've never, I can't think now if someone's been really obstinate about their atheism or anything. but no, no, they're coming to pastor to marry them. They're not looking to preach about atheism. That's been my modus operandi. Why? Because that grace was demonstrated to me. But as a prescription, would I make that? I wouldn't. I would say, as God says, and warn as God does, and maybe I need to mature in this. What is it for? Second Corinthians says this. It's for fellowship. It's for harmony. It's for agreement. And if you don't agree about the God that you're supposed to worship, there's a whole lot of discord in the house. And again, I can testify to that in my own marriage early on. Lots and lots of discord. So God calls this thing detestable that they would marry a foreign God. But there is more, right? Marry a woman that worships a foreign God. But there's more in that um, uh, this is... Israel's people, right? And he's still trying to teach them this, this, this lesson of holiness, what it means to be holy. But they've broken faith. Now we're in verse 11. Judah has broken faith or dealt treacherously with one another. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. He's desecrated the sanctuary of the Lord loves by marrying a daughter of a foreign God. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, the Lord, may the Lord cut him off for the tents of Jacob, even though... Uh, He brings offerings to the Lord Almighty. Okay, here we go. Verse 13. So another thing you do then. So God's like, and another thing. You flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. Right? And you ask, why? This is in verse 14. It is because the Lord is acting as a witness between you and the wife of your youth because you have broken faith that is dealt Um, detestably, is that the word, dealt, what is it, treacherously with the wife of your youth. And so um, because you have dealt uh, treacherously with her, even though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. So now God moves into this kind of second idea, right? So the first idea is you're, you're marrying women who worship foreign gods. That's a problem, right? But there's a second problem, and it's that you've not even remained faithful to the wife of your youth, that you've broken faith with her. And not only that, but you, and this is an interesting thing, you flood the Lord's altar with your tears as you do it. And so what does it look like to flood the Lord's altar with our tears or the tears? Priest's tears or israel's tears what does it say you weep and you wail because god no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands there's this expectation and i i can i'm just sharing this with you from the text there's this expectation that we can live any way we want that israel can behave any way they want and and yet they know the combination and if they do these things god has to receive it with pleasure we're doing what you told us. Don't watch over here. Don't look over there. But we're doing what you told us to do. And, and, then, and then when he doesn't receive it, it says, you plead at my altar with tears. Why? Why are you far from me? I remember one time I heard another pastor talking about premarital counseling in college kids. And he said, anytime a kid says to him, man, I really feel far from God right now, the pastor's response is, what's her name? What's his name? Well, what do you mean? What kind of relationship are you in that you're feeling distance from God over? You're a believer, right? Well, yeah. Well, what's getting in the way of that? Because we know inherently there's things that uh, we want to do, but when we do them, we begin to feel this experience, this distance from God, and that's what's happening here. Israel is weeping through tears. Let me ask you this question. Why is it a big deal that God would receive the sacrifice at their hands, that he would, he would um, be pleased with the offering? I couldn't help but remember myself, the very first murder in the Bible is over this very thing, where God says to one, I receive that with great you know, honor, and the other, that's not worthy of me. And the brothers kill each other over it. It's a huge deal. And they're crying out to God. And he says, you know two things because you no longer pay attention and not not the not the israelites that god isn't paying attention that's their lament to him they're crying by the way weeping and wailing is like like literally getting out of control about your your um uh hurt with god like you're just really being um expressive about what you believe what you what you're feeling what god's making you feel he's no longer accepting them with pleasure I'm uh, oh, sorry no longer paying attention to them and no longer accepting with the pleasures, the second thing. Uh, he's not pleased with their offerings. Why? Because they're living a lifestyle that's inconsistent with what he's asked for. And they act as if they can live any way they want and bring whatever they want and God has to deal with it, right? They know the combination to the lock. By the way, here in verse 14, it says, you ask why? That's the fourth didactic dialectic in the text. So fourth times now, God says, why? And here's his accusation. It's because the Lord is acting as a witness between you and the wife of your youth because you have broken faith with the wife of your youth. Though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. So God lays out a few things there that he's got a problem with with Israel. They're breaking faith with their, the wife of the youth. Now, there's a couple ways you can read this. You can read it like metaphorically, right? Like they're breaking faith with the God who saved them. They're breaking faith with the God who delivered them, right? By, by marrying Daughters of foreign gods, or women who worship foreign gods. And by the way, this is not to scapegoat women on this deal. It's just he's asking for holiness, and they're, and they're not listening to what he's asking for. Because the Lord is the witness, though, between you and the wife of your youth. Um, one of the things I say to all the couples I marry as well, they say, what are we going to do on the wedding day? I say, I don't care what we do. We have two. I have two goals where I won't be involved. Uh, one is to honor God, and the second is to get you married. That's why I'm there, right? So if at the end of the day, God's honored and you're married... Success. We want it to be awesome. That's the goal. But those are the big overarching things that are non-negotiable, right? And, 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 and couples that proceed with marriage, with me officiating, agree with that. And they're like, okay, we're gonna honor God and, and be married by the end of the day. Praise God, right? Um, that's what we are after. Because why? Because God is the witness between you and the wife of youth, can I just confess something to you this morning, real quick? This is a really hard text for me to get into because I am such a fan of marriage, and I think we have done such disservice, and me included, in in rightly honoring marriage and treating it with the respect that's it's due. And so, for me, this text is like a so, you know you hear that softball pitch, or Remember remember we played Chicago ball, a big old it's called rag ball. You throw that thing up there and just floats in, and you can just hammer it. That's the problem with this text right now for me because I go. This is so broken. This is so broken, the way we uh, act about marriage, the way we treat marriage, the way we treat one another in marriage. It's so broken, and I I, I just feel like I need to pull back. I don't want to just beat this uh, to death here. But God is there. The Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to to go, I was just a young, dumb kid. I didn't know what I was doing, but now I know. And so I, I don't want to be in this marriage anymore. What? You know, my question always is, and I'm just laying this out was God absent that day? Did he take a break? Was he not there? Now, I get that this is a, can be a very personal and deep thing, and I'm not acting as if I'm just telling you what God's word says, that that's his desire, is that men would not be unfaithful to the wives of their youth. As a matter of fact, I mentioned reality TV programming. and How much a reality TV program these days, and I'm just saying, why do we enjoy it? Why do we indulge in it? Because it... it it scratches some itch for us, like, ooh, that's so salacious. Oh, they're having an affair. Ooh, the wives of whatever they are. And ooh, the people of the island of thing. About, you know, and it's all this scandalous, and people are, oh, they're flirting with each other, and it's so dangerous. And, 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 and across the board, we play with something that is terrifying and God is not pleased with. You've dealt treacherously with the wife of your youth. Why? Because she's your partner, you remember, in the creation, your helper, you've dealt with her in ways that are dishonest or unfair. And by the way, this can go either way, so I'm not just picking on guys, but this can go, this unfaithfulness. You've made a commitment. That's what it says. Because she is the wife of your covenant promise. That's why it matters. Because she's the one you made a promise to. One final thing on this, and I'll move off of it. God's not accepting the Sacrifice at their hands. He's not pleased with them. He's not, he's not attending to them anymore because they've broken faith with the wife of their youth. Um, it, it's, it's, it's such a problem. There's like a whole thing for it. Th- this is why it's so hard for the church to have any uh, place to stand on issues of integrity and in marriage because we've accepted so much of it that we just go, oh, whatever's good enough. You know, it'll work. It's so common that it's something that, as a man and a woman, we have to resist. We have to resist that season of life where we've gotten through, we've raised the kids, we've done all this stuff, and we go, you know, nah, I just want to do me. We've got to fight that. Because it's the wife, the husband of your covenant promise. It's the wife or husband who was your partner when you were young. One of the things that um, often happens when you're doing marriage counseling is, this is kind of one of those indicator things, but you get people together who are just ready to kill each other, usually. And um, you, uh, which you know, it's till death us do part, so maybe fair game. <laughs> and uh, but I, I often will say, and this was my idea, uh, tell me, tell me the story of how you met. Tell me the story. And it's amazing how when people are even ready to kill each other, they start to recount this tale. They remember again the person that they committed to, the partner they've had all these years. It's wild. It's not, and if you don't get that, that's a sign that man, this is not good. If you can't get that story, because we know what happened, because you're here. God's not pleased with them. They broke in covenant faith with their marriage partner. Verse fifteen. Has not the Lord made them one? There it is. In flesh and spirit, they are His. And this, and and why one? Because He was seeking godly offspring. So now it's about households of faith and people of faith and God building a nation after himself he wants a righteous people he wants people worshiping him he wants godly offspring I have a question do you believe that our behavior affects our offering? do you believe that the way we act in our real lives for real time changes how we interact with God when we come to him with things? Why would we even want God to accept our offerings with pleasure? What's the word say then? It's a warning. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. He's just like laying it down there. This is the truth. This is how I feel about it. So what do you do? Guard yourself in your spirit and don't break faith. That's the same word. Deal treacherously with the wife of your youth. Take heed, be faithful, and remain. By the way, the reason I like to share uh, Genesis 2:24 with couples when they get in premarital counseling. Is because Jesus quotes uh, that same verse. And this is in Matthew. And you know, not to turn there. It's on the screen here. It'll be on the screen in a second. Um, but Matthew chapter 19, I believe it is. Let's see. Or, uh, yeah, 19, 4 and 6. And also it's found in Mark 10, 5 through 9. Same thing, different uh, passages of the Bible. But this is what Jesus says. Have you not read... That at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Jesus quotes that verse. But then listen to this. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. So Jesus is going, you've heard it said that this is a great thing. But let me tell you something. God's done something in marriage that you ought not play with. That he's made, he's made a, there's a commitment here that that supersedes. By the way, it's worth pointing out that Jesus is teaching in the middle of there saying, well, why can't we get divorced for the only reason we want? Why not? He's like, because God has made them one. It's the same thing that Malachi said. Did he not make them one? Having a body and spirit? He made them one. So they might have godly offspring. So there's this thing right now, and we're going to end with 16. There's this thing right now. It's kind of it's old. It's like so 2019, probably even 2018. It's called YOLO. You only live once. It was young people doing it. I know. I'm too old to get it, but I'm just saying. And every time the young people got here, they'd do something stupid. They would just be like, YOLO! And they would do something stupid, right? Jump off a cliff, jump off a plane without a parachute. I don't know whatever they're doing, right? And uh, it was always, the, and the implication was, you only live once. That's what it stood for. You only live once, so do it. Just take the risk, right? And, and I go, man, that's not wise. As an older person, I'm like, that's not great. But I also kind of remember being a young person going, YOLO, you know? It, that was not kill you, makes you stronger kind of idea, right? But what's, what's scary to me is that where I've seen this manifest in people's lives for real is they buy in all age groups, buys into the YOLO in this way. I need to get my happiness now. I need to be fulfilled now. I need all these things now. And if I'm not going to get them now, I'm just going to take, I'm going to have it. YOLO. You only live once. What do I mean? You only live once, meaning birth to death. And if, if you believe that that's the totality of your cycle in life, you've got to wring everything out of it. You've got to get everything that you're owed and deserved because you're going to be dead soon. And if you don't get it before, you don't hear it a bucket list. That's a yolo list you only live once it's on the bucket list gotta get it done because when i'm dead it'll be over here's the problem with that it does not recognize the truth that you only live once forever not that you only live once from birth to death you only live once forever and if death is just a stopping point on the way to the rest of your life if you do stupid things now because yolo and you realize that oh no yolo right you live with the implications of the stupid things you did. Here, here's the crazy thing. Is it causes me so much grief because we have such a tendency to look at the temporal, immediate things like Israel and then we ignore the fact that there's an eternity to be enjoyed. There's a whole thing. As a matter of fact, Jesus taught scandalously, I believe, that marriage is for this life only. It's for this one. And there's this whole other life that we have together. We make it uh, too much. It's for a season. Why am I so passionate about this? I get discouraged when I see people who just check out of that process. And and you know what makes me wonder? Do you believe the gospel? Do you believe there's an eternal life? Because if you've got to be happy now at all costs, what is that going to mean later? This life is not all there is. And so as much as I want to kind of point fingers and kind of uh, cast aspersions at the youth for YOLO. Sadly, tragically, I see way too many full-grown adults living in the exact same way. What is it called? A midlife crisis? You've got to, right, trade them in on a new model? The way we talk about this stuff? And it grieves me. And I don't think it grieves me because I'm self-righteous. I think it grieves me because it grieves God. That he has an intended purpose. That he is our covenant witness. Verse 16. I hate divorce, says the Lord, God of Israel. And I hate a man's covering of himself with violence as well as with his garments, says the Lord of hosts almighty. That's one of those verses that, you know, we were talking like God says I hate something, Like we should pay attention to that. What does that mean? Hates a broken promise. Hates a lack of commitment. Hates someone, sending someone away, is what the word divorce there means, to send someone away, to discard them, to call them worthless, to not value them rightly. God, God's not pleased with it. This, past, this one verse here says, covering their violence with garments. I'm like, what does that mean? And it's this idea that you kind of just mask it over and say, it's fine. You're doing all this stuff under the scenes, but you're like, it's fine because you don't have to see it. I'm going to cover up my violence. And, and what he says there is that divorce is violence divorce is violence you're like oh my goodness what so it's not only that that israel is marrying women who are worshiping a foreign god but then they're divorcing the wives of their youth to marry new ones and then they're doing violence against the covenant promises that god has made and they're covering it all up with their garments and saying it's fine it's fine the passage comes with a final warning then because he hates it, because you're covering yourself with the violence of your garments so you're just trying to brush it all under the rug. Guard yourselves in your spirit, listen, and do not break faith. Do not deal detestedly with one another. Do not deal treacherously with one another. Guard your spirit Israel. I have to believe, even in this late hour, God means what he says, in Malachi, he's like, I still want you to do it. I still want you to keep the covenant promises. I still want you to know that I'm a, I'm a person who believes that these things matter. Take heed in your spirit and don't deal treacherously with one another. Don't be unfaithful. Well, my goodness. After that, like, where do you go? What do you do, right? Because I'm married my marriage isn't perfect and i'm one of those guys that's doing it or you're here and you're like dude i'm not even married how does this even apply to me right this could to stay home today this was about marriage the covenant promise of the wife of your youth that you've made a commitment to well, i'm not married to anybody what does this mean to me or maybe you're here and you're like yeah, i've been through divorce this is terrible and i'm grieved over it what about me does that, does that mean that God hates me? I want to share with you the passage where Paul, man, he gets so close to just unwrapping this mystery. It's in the middle of a thing where you're caught up on ourselves. We're like reading this. when We, when we talk about marriages and stuff. We read this for ourselves and how we're called to live. This is in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter uh, 5, two verses. Paul quotes it, starting in 31. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. 32. And this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Hear it again. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. When God's calling his people Israel to be faithful to him, he's like, I believe in covenant promises. I told your silence coming until Jesus comes. And, and then here's Paul kind of expounding on this idea of the covenant promise. It's a profound mystery. But I mean Christ and the church, what's that mean? That means that he's the faithful husband. It means that he's the one that doesn't break faith. It means that he's the one that wants godly offspring, and therefore he redeems us. The word is so powerful here, it says he's going to present us to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. See, the reality is is that we cling to all these things and we go, you, you recognize, maybe you don't, but if you do with me, you recognize, not good enough, I'm not good enough. And at the end then, God says, and I'm going to make a way for people who aren't good enough. I'm going to make a way to heal people who aren't good enough. And it's my son, Jesus Christ. He is the perfect covenant partner. He's the one that will never leave you or betray you. He will never set you aside, no matter what you've gone through, no matter where you are. And then all of a sudden, guess what? We all get rolled up into the covenant promise of marriage, right? Because it's not about my marriage being good enough or your marriage being good enough. It's about a God who loves us enough that he's going to redeem us fully. Husbands and wives, sons and daughters, birthing us into the kingdom. People who are uncertain, struggling. People who are doubting God's love. He's going to love them into a covenant with himself because he's making a way for them. The bridegroom is Christ. And we have this great mystery in the church. So what's the hope? Listen, the hope is for Excellent marriages. The hope is for healing in marriages. The hope is for vulnerability with one another. The hope is that we would see one another more alike than different. Listen, the hope is for healing from divorce. The hope is for a promise beyond the grave. A king who's come for us. I don't know where you are and and. We, we ought to do both things at once. We ought to say, yes, God demands holiness, and yes, he is our holiness. Those have to exist at the same time. And we can't say, well, because he's holy, we can just do whatever we want because it doesn't matter. But we also can't say that our righteousness is anything compared to Christ's righteousness. I don't know how this struck you today, but I want to pray with you that we would welcome ourselves into his covenant relationship. We welcome him into our home as the head of the household, and that we could do that together to glorify him. Why? So we might be in right relationship with him, that we might be pleasing in our offerings to him. Pray with me if you would. Father God, we thank you so much for this day and the word, the the power of your text to teach us who you are. But God, we're not infatuated with the word, we're infatuated with you, your great love for your people, the long-suffering of your covenant promise that as much as we hear those words and they wound, that you hate when we break faith, you hate when we're unfaithful, and, and then we hear that as people who are, have a tendency to be unfaithful, Father, but we know that you are not. You are perfectly faithful. Oh, Lord God, would we just receive that today? I pray for folks who are here who, um, who maybe uh, have no relationship with you, that they would know you in a powerful way, that your Holy Spirit would teach in this moment that yes, you, yes, you are my chosen, that I gave my life for you, and that this life is not all there is, that there's a life coming that's full of blessings and God's presence in Christ. And Lord, for the days that come that are hard, the days that seem long, whenever we want to pin all our hope in this world, I pray we just take that out and and leave it to you, that we would put our hope in you. Father, for marriages that have been struggling, I pray you would continue to call us to repentance and love in those places that are most intimate and that you would heal us. Father, for those of us who've been affected by divorce, I pray you continue to heal us. For those who've, who've had to experience that, you would heal us. Oh, Father, for most of all, though, a kingdom people, a people called out because Messiah has come, that the great Redeemer is among us and calling us home even now. May you be glorified. May we know we're part of that, that we are not excluded from your kingdom. We love you so much. We thank you for the word. We thank you for your time and attention. We pray it in Jesus' name.